0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem. That is God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Shemot Names. The address is Shemot Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 6 verse 1. The reading date is for Shabbat and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben-Lyman. The written commentary was updated on January 8th of 2007. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol haamim, venatan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah Adonai Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. This week we begin a new book of the Torah. We are into Exodus. We've completed Genesis. I hope you've been following the podcasts and the written commentaries uh, since the beginning because I believe that God's Word can yield great spiritual nutrition if we study it uh, the way that it was written Uh, read Genesis, and then read Exodus. That's not to say for personal purposes that you might not jump around from time to time, but we are reading the stories as they've been written down by Moshe, and the characters and the development of the situation builds on one another, so it's important to know that Abraham has already been introduced to the readers, and the... um, covenant with Abraham has already been ratified and cut. And uh, therefore, when Moshe comes along and brings in the covenant of Torah, then the covenant with Abraham is already in mind. It's already been uh, given to us, the readers. Also, you'll notice if you've been following the podcasts that my intro music changed. I've decided to commission Ryan Kingsley, who's a very good friend of mine and a Personal Talmud, I should say. I've commissioned him to write an intro and outro song for each of the five books of Moshe, as well as the other teachings that I've been producing, the other commentaries that I put out by way of podcasts. So each one has a signature song. I hope you like the new music. And as always, um, if you want more information regarding the music, uh, contact me, and I'll forward the email straight over to um, Ryan, and he'll get your information, okay? Um This time the song uh, chosen for Exodus is entitled uh, Veshamru, and the song is a traditional Jewish song or tune uh, sung to Exodus 31 verses 16 and 17 of which we're going to use the music as we get closer to that uh, particular parasha. Probably about two months from now, we're we're going to treat the audience, the listening audience, to a full-blown song, the full song, not just the intro. So. Be sure and stay tuned for that. At any rate, Ryan didn't write the song Vishamru this time. He simply um, remixed it and made it into messianic techno. So I hope you like the uh, intro and outro music. I'm liking it. I'm enjoying them. Let's get back to the commentary at hand. All right, the Book of Exodus is called Exodus in the English. The familiar English title was applied much later when the Torah was canonized. But for those of you who wonder what the original name was, the Hebrew name, I should say, is called Shemot. Now, that's not to say I believe that the English title came first. Rather, I think um, the church had canonized the books of the Bible before the Jewish community did, actually. Interestingly enough, they canonized the Tanakh, the order of the books before the, the uh, Jewish community did. At either rate, the Hebrew name is Shemot, and it derives from the first few words of the book, and it has always been the title among the Jewish community. Shemot. Now, the root word Shem means name. Moreover, it is the name of the eldest son of Noach. Uh, shem, Ham, and Yapheth That's how you say them in Hebrew. In English, we end up saying Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, Shem or Shem is the Hebrew term for name. Now, if you remember, Shem was the recipient of the righteous blessing in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Etymologically, we derive the modern word Semitic from this man's name as well, Sem, Shem. A Semite, if you'll recall, is a descendant of Shem. Now, according to sheep chapters 10 and 11, Avraham was a descendant of Shem. Thus, the Hebrew people as well as the Arabic peoples, spring from the Semitic stem, or the Semitic race. I'm using the word race there loosely, because there truly is only one race uh, on earth, and that's the human race. But the word can be used loosely, refer to a people group, and so the Semitic peoples, sometimes referred to as the Semitic race, um, come from that son of Noah. Also, the word Hashem, You've heard me say that before, Hashem, which is what I and many other Orthodox Jewish people call God, is made from the Hebrew words ha, which means the, and shame, which means name. Thus, Hashem literally means the name. So, back to our uh, book here Shemot means names, it's the plural of the word shame. Okay enough on the uh, language language uh, lesson there. I know many of you listening to the podcast are interested in um Hebrew and you maybe you're teaching yourself Hebrew and, on the side. Um I'm very much interested in Hebrew as well. I'm not I'm not 100% fluent in Hebrew. I'm better at biblical Hebrew than I am at conversational Hebrew, which means if you dropped me in the land of Israel and left me to fend for myself, I could I, I could make do but I'd feel uncomfortable having conversations with people there. However, give me a Torah scroll, and I'm pretty comfortable reading what I'm looking at. Parashat Shemot signals the beginning of the most significant event in the history of the Jewish nation. And what is that? Matan Torah, as long with the exodus from Mitzrayim, Egypt. It is very significant because it's the exodus from Egypt that brought the great multitude to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah of Hashem. And that's what Matan Torah means, the giving of the Torah. Surely it is significant for us believers today, for only after our deliverance from Egypt, which is a type and shadow of sin, does Hashem graciously give us His written revelation, the Torah written upon the tablets of our circumcised hearts. You can reference Jeremiah 31:33 for... Uh, that information only with circumcised hearts can we worship him in spirit and in truth, according to his will, also, as we shall discover during this book, the deliverance from Egypt is meant to forever signify to those who have genuinely experienced it a deliverance from bondage. That's not to say that Egypt itself is bad but the types and shadows that are painted in the Torah, the word pictures that are given to us, show Egypt to be a type of sin and a type of house of bondage and so when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he says to them I have delivered you from sin, I have delivered you from the house of bondage and that deliverance becomes the paradigm for every true believer who has been delivered from his own personal sin This bondage, which is taught elsewhere in the rest of the Torah, has been characterized as a type of sin, as I'm um, going to keep repeating over and over again. Moreover, we as believers in Messiah Yeshua are taught that the physical deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt is a picture of our deliverance from the bondage that sin held us in prior to coming to Yeshua. It's really quite simple if we think about it. It's significant, therefore, that we as non-Jewish believers, uh, the Gentiles, gain an appreciative understanding of the events and the circumstances surrounding the exodus from Egypt in other words, too often it's, it's easy to read the exodus narrative and disconnect ourselves as the church from what we're reading because we read it and we see that this is for Israel and too often we the church don't see ourselves as connected to Israel, therefore we read the exodus story and we think wow that's nice, but that's not for me I'm here to tell you that it is for you. Egypt and the deliverance is a type and shadow of your deliverance from your personal sin and slavery. And as you read the story in the Exodus narrative, put yourself back into the text. Why? Because you, the believer in the church, you've been grafted into Israel. That's exactly what Paul tells me in the books of Ephesians as well as the book of Romans. I know That God has set me free from sin, whether I'm a Jew or a Gentile. That's what people remind me all the time. Ariel, I don't have to be Jewish to be delivered from sin. This is true. But the paradigm set by the story is that we identify with the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, we, whether we're Jew or Gentile, must reckon with the truth that we have been set free from sin, of course, through the personal sacrifice of Yeshua, our Messiah. Therefore, I challenge you, the reader, as you read through the pages of the Exodus this year, um, don't disconnect yourself from the text. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. Put yourself in Israel's position. After all, if you're grafted in, you are part of Israel. Amen? Amen. Let's keep reading. I'd like to go to the text and um, support what I've been teaching here straight from the text. Let me pull a quote from Exodus 3.12. Quote, He... Hashem, that is replied, I will surely be with you. Your sign that I have sent you will be that when you have led the people of, when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. End quote. Now, why did I pull this quote? Well, in my opinion, it's very, very important that at this early stage in Hashem's dealings with Am Yisrael, that is to say, the people of Israel, that Moshe or Moses, their prophet. um, God dealing with them, he's already promising that he will indeed deliver them. Isn't it, in fact, fantastic that we're reading this right up front? I believe that this demonstrates the heart of our loving Abba. And that he wants us to realize that not only is he willing to deliver us, but more importantly, he is able to deliver us. And that it is his desire that we be delivered. So, he wants it, he can do it, and we should walk into it. It's really quite simple. There's no excuse for us to remain in sin and shame. Plus, when we hear of this wonderful good news, we are inclined all the more to place our trust and faithfulness in him, don't you think? Unfortunately, like Moshe, sometimes even the assurance from the mouth of the Almighty himself is not enough to convince us. Moshe, in fact, still finds it necessary to, how shall we say, argue the situation with Hashem. Moshe himself is not quite convinced earlier on that this is what should happen, that God can deliver, that God will deliver, and that the people should want to be delivered. Moshe has to argue with God right at the beginning of the text, the first two chapters, one through three, as Moshe dialoguing with God. We're familiar with the, with the story. Moshe argues that he's not... Um, fit to deliver the people um, that he's got a slow tongue or slow speech or something to that effect that he's a stutterer you've heard these stories before in your Sunday school classes and then we read that Moshe says and argues well you know what if the people don't believe me but in this um, this, this arguing um, we see that Moshe and God reach some very important details they work out some very important details Uh, Between them, and that's where I'm going to pick up my commentary this week. Um, Perhaps we can identify with his initial doubt. Uh, Hashem goes on to reveal something to Moshe about his unchanging character, so vital to the oppressed Jewish nation then and now, and is likewise important for non Jews today. Let's peek into the text and find out. In verses 13 through 21 of chapter 3, a very significant dialogue takes place between the Holy One, blessed be He, and Moshe. And it is here that my commentary will find its focus this week. This next section is entitled, Shemot Names. Moshe informs Hashem that when the time comes for Him to introduce this invisible Deliverer of theirs to the people, that they in turn will inquire about His name. As mentioned earlier, the Hebrew word for name is Shem. In Hebrew thought, what you may not have known, is that a name implies a reputation. The name is the embodiment of the character of an individual based upon who they are or what they have done. In fact, Brown, Driver, and Briggs' Jessenius lexicon gives us that information. you can use that Jacinius lexicon to look up the word shame and find my quote there. The online version of the Jewish Encyclopedia makes this statement about the divine name of God. Let me lift a quote from the Jewish Encyclopedia online, okay? quote: Like other Hebrew proper names, the name of God is more than a mere distinguishing title. It represents the Hebrew conception of the divine nature or character and of the uh, and of the relation of God to his people. It represents the deity as he is known to his worshippers and stands for all those attributes which he bears in relation to them and which are revealed to them through his activity on their behalf the Jewish Encyclopedia Online goes on to say that a new manifestation of his interest or care may give rise to a new name. So, also, an old name may acquire new content and significance through new and varied experience of the sacred relations. Quote. I lifted that online quote from www.jewishencyclopedia.com and you can simply search for the uh, article on the name there. Before I go much further in this commentary, I wish to draw your attention to a lengthy 24-page commentary called What's in a Name? And it's available at our website at graftedin.com. In that commentary, I developed what I'm about to talk about a little further um, than, what I doing, than what I'm doing, what i doing in this um, commentary to the Parashaw. So if you want more on the names of God than what I'm about to give you, then uh, read the commentary, What's the Name? It is available right on our site. However, let's um, look at the verse here. The following discussion um, on the names of God uh, picks up in my uh, commentary here in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 of Exodus. So, um, in this portion of Scripture, Hashem reveals His nature to Moshe in a way that according to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, Has never been done before in the Torah up to this point. So what I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 2 and 3 from Exodus. And then I'm going to go back and read chapter 3, verses um, 13 through 15 uh, out of Exodus. And then we'll draw some correlations between the two. Now what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to read the Hebrew rendered from David Stern's uh, Complete Jewish Bible. And then I'm going to read the Hebrew out of my uh, Hebrew Tanakh here. And uh, the first thing I want you to notice as you're listening is for the... I'm going to say Adonai, but I mean yod Hei vav uh when I read the Hebrew. So what will happen is, let me read it for you and then I'll explain it a little bit, okay? Let me first read the English. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 in the English reads, quote, God spoke to Moshe and he said to him, I am Adonai. Verse 3 reads, I appeared to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as El Shaddai, although I did not make myself known to them by my name, vav Adonai. Okay, end quote. That's from David Stern's version. Now let me read the Hebrew of that same verse. Okay, uh, starting in verse 2, and then I'll read verse 3. Verse 2 in the Hebrew reads, Vayidaber Elohim El Moshe, Vayomer Elive Ani Adonai. Verse three reads, Ira el Avraham el Yitzchak ve'el Yaakov be'el Shadai Ushmi Adonai lo nodaati lahem." End quote. So, what I want to point out for you, first of all, is that in chapter six of in chapter six of Exodus, verses two and three, the the, the Tetragrammaton name of God shows up Y H V H in verse um, shows up in verse. Uh, what is it? 2 shows up the end of verse 2 and also shows up once in verse 3 there. Alright, now what I want you to listen carefully for is I'm going to go backwards in the book of Exodus and read Exodus chapter 3. I'm going three verses backwards, three chapters backwards rather. I'm going to go back and read chapter 3 verses 13 through 15 and I want you to listen to some of the Hebrew. Okay. First I'm going to read it from David Stern's version in the English Quote, Moshe said to God, Look, when I appear before the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What am I to, to tell them? God said to Moshe, Eheh asher Eheh, I am will be what I am will be, and added, Here's what you, Here is what to say to the people of Israel. Ehyeh, I am or I will be, has sent me to you. God said further to Mos- Moshe Say this to the people of Israel Yudhei Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Ishak, and the God of Yaakov, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered generation after generation. Now, David Stern admittedly writes the phrase Yudhei right in front of the word Adonai because he's trying to emphasize what I'm trying to emphasize. So, whenever I use the word Adonai, you're going to hear yod That's what it says in the text. Let me read it for you in Hebrew, alright? Those same verses, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, in the Hebrew, okay, not in English, it reads, let's see, oops, here we are. Starting in verse 13, it reads, Vayomer Moshe El Elohim. Hine a ba el bene Israel, va amarti lahem, Elohe avotehem, Shlachni elechem, va amri li ma ma amar elechem. I'm sorry, yes, elechem. Uh, verse fourteen says, Vay yomer elohim el Mushe Ehe asher ehe, Vay yomer tomar livne Israel, Ehe. Shalachni Alechem, verse fifteen reads, Vayomer od Elohim el Moshe, Ko Tomar el Bene Israel, Adonai Elohe Avotechem, Elohe Avraham, Elohe Itzhak, the Yaakov, Shalachni Alechem, Ze Shmi, Leolam, Ze Zikri, Lador, Dor. End quote. So, that's the Hebrew of those verses. Now, looking at the first part of verse 14, of what I just read, we note that Hashem tells Moshe that his quote-unquote name shall be referred to as Echeh Asher Ehyeh, which David Stern renders, I am slash will be what I am slash will be. Now, here's where I'd like to just park our... Uh, the study for a second and, and dig in deep. In my opinion, this appears to be very strange, that is to simply, to simply state that he is or that he will be, because Moshe asks what is his name, but God responds with I am or I will be, depending on which translation you have. So this is very strange until we understand that Hashem is about to deliver his people in a way that has never, or that he has never before performed. God is about to reveal to Moshe that he's going to deliver his people uh, in a brand new way. And not only is he going to do this, but he will be forever remembered for this deliverance. This is why, in my opinion, the phrase, I am, is not really the best rendering of the Hebrew phrase, ehyeh. Rather, the phrase carries with it the idea that Hashem is about to perform a mighty work never before witnessed by his people. In essence, I will be, is what the uh, Hebrew seems to be telling us. Uh, to be sure, Rashi, a famous uh, Jewish commentator, uh, offers thoughtful insight uh, into this inter- interchange by explaining that when Hashem invoked the double reference of Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. He was informing Moshe that he would go together with all of Israel and sustain them during this exile in Egypt and in all future exiles, as Ehe means, I will be there. That's according to Rashi. Uh, Roshbam also goes on to say, uh, Roshbam is cited by Bechor Shor, um, confirms the possible translation of he causes to be. Now, um, let me... Pull my quote from Roshbaum here so that we can see this. From the Roshbaum, quote, ehyeh Asher ehyeh. This phrase has variously been translated, quote, I am that I am, end quote. quote, I am who I am, end quote, and, quote, I will be what I will be, end quote. So uh, Roshbaum covers all three. He goes on to say that it clearly evokes Yod Heh Vav Heh the specific proper name of Israel's is God, known in English as the Tetragrammaton, that is, four consonants. The phrase also indicates that the earliest recorded understanding of the divine name was a verb derived from the stem HVH, the uh, He, Vav, Hey, taken as an earlier form of the uh, Hey Yud, He, the H-Y-H, which means to be. Either it expresses the quality of absolute being, the eternal unchanging dynamic presence, or it means, quote, he causes to be, end quote. yod is the third-person masculine singular. eh is the corresponding first-person singular. This latter is used here because name-giving in the ancient world implied the wielding of power over the one named. Hence, the divine name can only proceed from God himself, end quote. Now let me just explain real quick what the Roshbam is trying to tell us is that God's name is yod heh but when he tells Moshe what his name is and tell him who sent you, um, it's as if Moshe uses different persons. So God says, I am, or I will be, has sent you. But when Moshe conveys this back to the people, when we hear yod heh we actually get, he will be, has sent me or he is, or he will be. So Moshe has to change the person, because Moshe is not quoting God directly by saying, um, I am, you know, uttering those phrases. That's what the uh, Rashmah is trying to tell us. My commentary goes on note that Hashem continues in verse 15 of our text here to say that the God of their fathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, is to be remembered forever as yod Hey vav That's what the text does tell us. Now, Here is where slight difficulty arises. I hope I don't lose you as a student, okay? So listen very carefully. According to a normative understanding of the Hebrew text, as you read it in your Bibles, and as I read it in my Bibles, and as I read it from the original Hebrew, this quote-unquote name is to be, quote, remembered forever. I bet you that's how most of your translations have it. This is my name forever. This is my appellation forever, or something like that. To be sure, Hashem tells Moshe in the latter part of verse 15 that this is his quote, this is Moshe, I'm sorry, Hashem's quote, name forever, when he says, I will be whom I will be. Now, the word translated forever is not spelled in the Hebrew text here, it's not spelled using the usual Hebrew lettering that the Torah readers are accustomed to when reading the English word forever. The usual spelling of forever in Hebrew is Transliterated letter by letter as O-L-A-M, if I were to transliterate them. The um, usual spelling is comprised of the Hebrew letters Ayin, Vav, Lamed, Mem. And if you're following along in the written commentary, you'll see the Hebrew script show up right after what I just read. Ayin, Vav, Lamed, Mem. The Hebrew script is right there. And we can observe this from my blue highlighted words in the quote below. So if you're following along in the written commentary, you'll see the letter show up in blue, uh, in this next quote. All right, let me read Exodus twelve fourteen to show you what I'm talking about. Quote from the KJV this time, quote, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. End quote. The word forever there shows up in blue um, in my uh, printed version here. The Hebrew um, of that exact phrase right there where it has forever, you'll see that it's ayin vav lamed mem. So that olam shows up in blue and you got all four letters. What is more, the Hebrew word comprised of the letters lamed ayin lamed mem does show up in other verses where the translation is rendered correctly as forever. Okay? Let me read Genesis 3.22 uh, from the KJV again. Quote, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And in my written translator here, uh, uh, written commentary, the word forever from the KJV is, is highlighted in blue font or blue color. Likewise, in the Hebrew that I show you in the printed uh, version, you'll see it is rendered Lamed Ayin Lamed mem, And yet the English translation is the same as the word above, which did not have the Lamed uh, start out with. It's, it's forever. So the, the bottom line is there are two Hebrew words, okay? Of the two possibilities in the translation of the Hebrew words Olam and Le Olam, okay, into the English word forever. So we got the English word forever that can be rendered two different ways in the Hebrew. One of them is olam, and the other one is olam. Of these two possibilities, in Exodus 3.15, it's the latter spelling, lamed ayin, lamed ayin, mem, lamed or la la'olam. That's what shows up in our Exodus 3.15 passage. Okay, That's what lies behind English. Now, I hope I'm not losing you. For some of you, this is really, really fun. Gosh, Ariel's finally giving us a Hebrew lesson. For other for others of you, perhaps this is getting bogged down, but I do apologize. All right. You're probably asking yourself, well, if they're both rendered forever into the English, what is the difference between the spellings? Why does one have a lamed, why does one have a missing vav and things like that? Well, grammatically speaking from the Hebrew, there are differing uses for the letter vav. And the letter Vav is just one little pig-like looking letter. There are differing uses for the letter Vav and its corresponding vowels. Vav in Hebrew sometimes plays the part of a consonant, and other times it plays the part of a vowel. And so one such usage is the letter Vav with a Cholam, which is a dot, above and to the left of the letter itself, as we read Hebrew right to left. And the example that I give you is the word, for, the word in Hebrew for thus. The word is kol. And we only have two consonants there, with a cholam, a dot, uh, kind of centered between the two letters, as we read right to left. The other usage is what we call a cholam vav, where the consonant letter itself is actually followed by a vav, with a dot directly above the vav itself. The example that I give you in the written commentary is the word, the Hebrew word for voice, which is kol and there are 3 letters there there's kof vav lamed in the word kol with the vav the vav has a dot above the above it which gives us our o sound as compared to the other word kol does not have a vav it just has the dot um above and to the left of the uh, of the letter kof there so in the case of the word olam the initial lamed that you hear from the l olam, the initial lamed, up front accounts for the preposition unto or for, which would make the remaining letters ayin, lamed, main connote the word ever. Thus, if I were to construct it this way, I'd have f- the word for plus the word ever equals forever. And maybe that's why we get l-olam. However, in the remaining word olam, the, the usual vav is not present. So, instead of having Olam spelled Lamed Ayin Vav Lamed Meim it's only spelled with four letters Lamed Ayin Lamed Meim there's no Vav there so look at your uh, written commentary there and compare, not counting the prepositional Lamed, compare the two renderings of the word uh, Olam the normative spelling is Olam with Ayin Vav Lamed Meim and the spelling in verse 15 is simply Ayin Lamed Meim three letters as opposed to four letters. All right. Don't lose me yet. Keep going with me. We're about to take a break on this particular audio, and then um, what we'll do is we'll continue. In my opinion, the verse could have easily made perfect sense if rendered using the normative spelling of olam without the preposition olam Instead of saying olam, L- um, we could have just had olam, and in my opinion, it, it still would have read forever. So, I have to scratch my head and ask, what could the Holy One have meant by this choice of alternate spellings for the same Hebrew meaning? For the same, um, What could the Holy One have meant by his choice of alternate spellings for the same English meaning uh, from different Hebrew words? And if you'd like to know more about omitting letters when spelling the names of God, you can read my excursus below. But for now, I have to ask... Why did God render the Hebrew with the Le'olam instead of just Olam? You ever ask that question yourself? Well, stick around and find out in part two of my commentary on Shemot Names.